You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Morning, everyone. Welcome to GBC. Uh, Before we get into the sermon here today, I'd like to seek God's direction in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I pray that my words would not be my own, but they would be yours. God, that your truth would be spoken here today and that we would be receptive to it. God, I pray that we are seeking you in all that we do and that the truth that we speak here today, that it would take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. We thank you and praise you for all that you've done. We pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Imposter syndrome. It's a psychological pattern of thought where someone doubts their skills, talents, or accomplishments as being insufficient for their role or surroundings. They feel like everyone else around them is justly qualified while they are just merely pretending to be qualified. This is a phenomenon that is often experienced by young professionals who are just now entering a prestigious environment. One example that is all too familiar to people here in this room, many of my own personal friends and my own fiance are medical students who feel this way on a regular basis. When they're surrounded with these experienced physicians or other students who always seem to have studied more and just know more, and even nurses who just have so many years of experience that make it look easy. However, when you experience imposter syndrome, you feel out of place, like you don't belong with all the others in your group, and that you are something different. Personally, I've struggled with a form of this in my own life for many years, with persistent feelings of being lesser than I am, or just not like all the other people around me. I compare myself and sometimes with what I could just, I wish that I could just be someone else. Some of time, some of you may have felt this way as well. Like sometimes people don't know the true you. Or like who you are inside is different than the way that people perceive you outside. Now the world struggles with this issue as well because this is an issue of identity. And the world has lots of different solutions that it proposes to fix this problem, to properly identify yourself. But we're going to be focusing on the false solution found in gender identity. We will examine the core problem at the heart of this issue, what God says about the issue, and how we as believers should approach this topic in our lives. Now, before we get into all of that, we need to first address what the world is claiming about gender identity. And that is primarily that you can find your identity in your gender and how you express it. As a disclaimer, this first part of the sermon will not feature all that much scripture because before we can discuss how God views gender and gender identity, we need to understand the origin and the meaning of this term gender. For many years, gender was identical in meaning to biological sex, meaning male or female primarily seeing usage when discussing linguistics, the meaning of this word was well established until around the 1970s, where in some academic circles, a new definition of gender began to circulate. And this new definition, this new concept, has spread widely throughout our modern vernacular. Now, the new definition of gender is disconnected from biological sex, 
and instead defines gender as a subjective interpretation of one's own identity as it relates to masculine or feminine roles and practices within a society. Now, that's a really heavy and dense intellectualized term and statement. But in short, gender used to be determined by biology. However, now it's determined by feelings. This may seem to be a small change on the surface, but it has a drastic impact on the way that people approach the issue of gender identity. With this change, people can quickly dismiss the scientific and biological components of the entire discussion by claiming that gender and biology are not connected. Now, this makes it difficult for many people to understand the positions and views of people that hold to this new definition of gender. However, we will see that regardless of the specific definition that you use for gender, it will not be able to truly provide you with identity. Now, when you listen to those who are transgender or people who, who identify themselves as non-binary, meaning they don't see themselves as male or female, you see that most of the times their attempt to, to define, redefine their gender are not a spur of the moment decision. People who redefine their gender do so because they have struggled for many years. They feel that they don't fit in. They feel like their own bodies don't represent their true selves. Now, this is not unlike someone with imposter syndrome. They desperately want to feel like they fit in. They want to feel like their true self is set free and they feel imprisoned inside of their own bodies. Transgender and non-binary people turn to their expression of gender to find identity because they feel like they need to in order to feel like themselves. They have chosen to find their identity in their gender and how they express it. However, not all cases are like this. As modern gender ideology states that changing your gender is as easy as changing a piece of clothing. You can change your gender to whatever you feel like to identify as whatever you want on a moment's notice. Now, and now there are times that people, and especially children, will decide to change their gender not based on a deep need in their hearts to be properly identified, but just because it seems interesting or because it gets a positive reaction from like-minded friends and family. The issue here is that the changing of one's identity is becoming trivialized and that any gender identity at all is devalued because that changing identity is all arbitrary. The difficulty thing, it's a difficult thing to see that children as young as three and four are told that they can choose their gender, which is a decision that they are nowhere near mature enough to understand or knowledgeable enough to make correctly. Children are not allowed to make most other important and permanent decisions in their lives until they turn 18. The current narrative says that gender identity is far less important than getting a tattoo, far more trivial than voting for a political candidate, and even less important than signing your own school field trip permission slip. We must understand that there is value in gender identity. There is value in gender. And that is why so many people have turned to it to find and define their own personal identity. The problem at the core of this thinking is a falsehood that many of us have fallen into as well. And then the key issue is that humanity tries to find meaning and identity in physical things and personal labels. For some of us, for some people, it means finding purpose in labeling themselves a different gender. But for many of us, it can look very different. Some of us are materialistic. 
We seek to find meaning and purpose in the physical things that we can surround ourselves with. We want to identify ourselves with our nice cars and fancy clothing and lavish lifestyles. We're desperately trying to label ourselves as one of the elite members of society. Others seek more labels, more meaning in the labels that people give each other. Some will slave for 60, 70, or 80 hours a week because they desperately want that promotion. They want that label of manager or supervisor or whatever the job is right next to their name because they need to identify themselves with that. Others yet seek after the labels that people give each other in an informal setting as people obsess themselves with pleasing others, trying so hard to get as many people as possible to label them as a friend and maybe even the coveted best friend. And they will fight to find identity in how other people view them. They will try to identify themselves through their reputation and how people perceive them. Now, all of these are examples that show that we as sinful beings are prone to search for meaning in the things of this world. And this struggle is not something unique to just those who focus it on their gender identity. Specifically, however, people who do struggle with their gender identity are often sold the lie that if only they could modify their physical body, if only they can change how they look, what they wear, how they act, and even surgically alter their biological features, then they will feel secure in their identity and have meaning in life. However, we must understand that this is false in every way because the truth is that no amount of alteration of your physical self will ever satisfy us. Us as our true issue is not physical. We need spiritual change, not physical change. And this is true for all people in all circumstance. There is no amount of weight loss that will satisfy your soul. There is no amount of Botox or cosmetic surgery that will give your life meaning. There is no amount of jewelry or cars that will secure your identity. And there is no amount of personal pronouns or gender reassignment surgery that will make you whole. No amount of physical effort, material thing, or label can ever satisfy us completely and truly and spiritually. What then are we to do about this? How do we address this? What are we to think? Well, we must seek God, who is our creator and designer, to find a true source of meaning and identity. What God says about gender identity is a question of what God says about identity as a whole. Now, this isn't a cop-out to say the Bible says nothing about gender, as scripture paints a pretty clear picture. But before we discuss this, we need to acknowledge God as our creator. In the United States, when an inventor comes up with a new creation or invention, they go to the government and they get a patent for it. And basically what a patent is, is it's an exclusive right to do whatever you want with your invention. Because you created it, it's yours. Say, for example, that you invented the first car back in the 1800s. So you go and you get a patent. So you can say, you have complete say over what goes on with it. You, even, you might even put a logo with your name on it to identify it as yours. If you wanted to sell these cars and have people use them, you might want to create an owner's manual for them. You would have to include in this owner man, owner's manual to put gasoline in the car, fill the, air, fill the tires with air, and turn the steering wheel to change directions. Now these are vital instructions that are necessary for the car to function. And they are coming from you, the inventor and the creator of the car, so you know best how the car should operate. Now, similar to this, God, as our creator, has an eternal patent on us. 
He has exclusive rights to say what goes on with us. It's not our own decision. And instead of marking us with a simple logo, he created humanity in his own image, forever marking us as the foremost of all of his creations. On top of this, God doesn't merely leave us to guess how he wants us to operate. He gives us an owner's manual in the form of the Holy Bible that guides us and tells us how we are to act and live in accordance to the way God designed us. Scripture make a point, makes a point of establishing this as well. If you open up in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, here we'll see Paul state very plainly that God is the creator and the authority over all things. As we read in Colossians 1:16, for by him, that meaning Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Scripture also states plainly that God had a specific design in mind when he created us and gender. If we turn in our Bibles all the way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we can see the creation account and that God was very intentional with how he designed us. In Genesis chapter 1, we can read in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we see that God intentionally designed humanity in his own image and that he created us in two biological sexes for a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, the total answer is very complicated. However, this very passage gives us a part of that answer in the very next verse. As we read in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I want to focus on that first part there for a second. Be fruitful and multiply. Part of God's plan for humanity is to have children, to create families. And I don't want to get into too much of a biology lesson here, but in order to multiply, you need both male and female as God has designed it. This is very clear in the next chapter of Genesis as well, where in Genesis 2.24, it mentions that a man shall leave his, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I want to add a small note that though the biological reproduction is part of the purpose of gender, it's not always an essential part of God's purpose for each one of us personally, as we will discuss in a moment. Some people are called to singleness, or they just aren't called to have children. However, this doesn't mean that God's biological purpose for gender can be disregarded. God has created us male and female, two genders, by design, and has made it clear in our operator's manual that this is designed for marriage and children. And this is the general biological and natural purpose as we were designed back in Genesis 1. And it states that every creature is meant to operate in this way. In verses 24 and 25, it says that each creature is meant to reproduce each according to its kind. 
and it was good. Now, this is all well and good to know. However, God's general purpose biologically and naturally for gender is not the whole picture. There is still a much more important calling given to us in Scripture, and that is God's personal design and plan for each individual person. Scripture makes it clear that God cares about you personally. Psalm 139, like we read for our call to worship, in verses 13 and 14 says, For you knitted, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God designed each and every one of us precisely as he intended to. And we are all unique, and God has a plan and a hope for every single person. What God wants for everyone personally is for them to come to know the gospel, to come to a saving faith in Christ Jesus and spend their lives pursuing a relationship with God. This is what we were designed for. Paul makes a point of this when encouraging Timothy to pray for all people, as he writes in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's foremost desire for us and our foremost need is to be in relationship with God. We can see this many times throughout Scripture. However, because of our sin, we are separated from God. But God, in his great mercy and grace, has made us a way to be with him to satisfy our greatest need. God accomplished this by coming to earth as Jesus Christ and sacrificing himself for us so that in Jesus' own words, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the Bible makes it clear time and time again in Romans 10, in Ephesians 2, in Colossians 1, in John 3, and in many, many more places that we need to be saved. We need to repent from our worldly desires and pursuits and ask for forgiveness. But what does this have to do with our identity in God? And what does it mean for gender identity? Well, in reality, everything. When we are born into this world, we are sinful and broken. We all realize this at some point or another in our lives. We realize that none of us were born right. None of us have our true identity when we are born. There is something missing, something wrong with us all. And that hole in our soul is the absence of God in our hearts. And the only way to fill that is through salvation, through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But once you've accepted Jesus into your life, everything changes. Paul writes it plainly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Through salvation, the broken, the imperfect, the version of us that just isn't right passes away. When you are raised to life in Christ, you are made new. When you are saved, your identity becomes secure. You adopt your true identity as a child of God, and your old identity, regardless of what it was, is gone. Scripture confirms this as Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. The truth is that our identity was never meant to be determined by earthly things, but only by Christ through our salvation. Now, because of the sin of the world, we will never be able to fix ourselves. We will never be able to make ourselves right by putting on some labels or using physical things. Paul makes this point in Galatians 3, when he clarifies that when you are in Christ, no earthly label or classification can completely identify you. In Galatians 3.28, he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Identity in Christ is more important than any job title or familial role or even gender identity. The bottom line is that the answer to those who are suffering to find their gender identity, they are struggling because what they really need and what we all really need is identity in Christ. So how are we as Christians to approach this? How do we deal with these issues of gender in our lives? We must strike a careful balance of how we can stand for the truth while also meeting the brokenhearted and struggling where they're at in order to love them as Christ loved them and leave them to a saving faith. Now, this is a very hard and even controversial thing to do. One very important question that often comes up is the use of preferred pronouns for those who identify as a gender other than their biological sex. Now, I know many of my friends in the medical and other industries are mandated to use these preferred pronouns for their patients or for their clients, and it can make them feel as if they are being to for forced to accept and promote this worldly view of gender identity. Now, I'm not speaking for the church as a whole, as there are a lot of people with a lot of different opinions on this issue, but I do want to address this issue some people believe that to use a preferred pronoun is a form of acceptance of a false premise that people can choose their own gender. And they believe that they should not use the pronouns that represent a person's chosen gender and should only use the pronouns of their biological sex. They make the claim that it doesn't matter what distress this causes them or if it offends people because they are taking a stand for the truth. I personally take the position that the use of preferred pronouns should be avoided if possible. However, extreme care should be taken to not refer to them in a way that is dismissive or diminishing or insulting. I apply the same standard that I use when ministering to someone of another religion. For example, if I were to attend a dinner party with a Muslim family, I would be careful not to bring anything that has pork in it so as to not intentionally offend them and damage my witness as a representative of Christ's love and care for that person. Now, this doesn't mean that I endorse or agree with their view of God, and it doesn't mean that I'm supporting their worldview, but it does mean that I care about reaching them where they are at. I say avoid their personal pronouns while still caring about the person. We must show kindness and grace when we approach those who are hurting, confused, and lost in the darkness of this world, just as Christ shows kindness and grace when he approaches us. Jesus is always a great example. In John chapter 4, he approaches the woman at the well, and he talks to her without contempt or without looking down on her, but he still acknowledges her unfaithfulness and adultery, all the while pointing to the solution to her life of discontent. He didn't spend his time judging her, 
because he knew what she really needed was Christ. She really needed God, not judgment. Unfortunately, ultimately, we are called to love others as Christ loves them. We are not to judge or look down on people because they are the victims of the sin of this world just as much as we all are. We are all brokenhearted in need of a savior. And in all that you do, follow God's direction in every specific circumstance. Seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in prayer as to how to best love and minister to the people around you, especially those who you disagree with personally. We as believers are called to identify ourselves with Christ, to find our identity in him and seek to follow his perfect example in our lives. That way, when we imitate Christ well, we may have a witness like Paul who instructs the church in Corinth to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now we live in a difficult time. Our world is full of division and hate and suffering. But we have been called to go out into this world and to love as God loves, to point the hungry to food, to share the living water of Christ with those who are dying of thirst. Christ commands us to go and make disciples. Take this command seriously. This may require you to set aside your pride and your personal opinions and feelings on these matters, to love those who, don't even, who you may not even want to talk to you. Guard your heart and be sure that your first priority is to love all even your enemies and sinners. Christ didn't say, go make disciples out of people you like. He didn't say, go make disciples with people on your side of the political aisle. He said, go and make disciples. This applies to anyone and everyone in your life. That manager who is always overcritical and takes credit for everything that you do, your job is to love them and point them to Christ. What about that neighbor who's always blasting loud music at insane hours of the night? You must love them and point them to Christ. What about that drama queen who only speaks in passive aggressive comments, seeking to stir up drama at every turn? You must love them and point them to Christ. What about that guy in the lifted truck that just cuts you off in traffic like he owns the road? You must love them and point them to Christ. And even those who have a different opinion on politics than you, you must love them and point them to Christ with all that you say and do. This is what it means to live as Christ, to set aside yourself, your feelings, your opinions, in order to give a witness to all in this world. This is what it means to go and make disciples. If you are truly a Christian, you must take this command seriously. However, for all of those who have not put their faith in Jesus, to all of those out there struggling to find their identity in the things of this world, hear me clearly when I tell you that it will never be enough. You will labor and work in vain. But Jesus gives a wonderful offer. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're all sinful creatures living in a broken world. 
Our hearts have chosen to rebel against God, and for that, we have to face the consequence of death and separation from God. We live in a world where division, violence, and dissatisfaction are not merely the norm. They are the only options. But God saw us in our state of brokenness and evil, and instead of pouring out wrath to punish us, he made a way to be reunited with us. He wants us to be with him in unity, in peace, and in satisfaction. And God accomplished this by coming to the earth and accomplishing the greatest act of love for us by sacrificing himself on the cross. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can now turn away and repent from our sins and find our true identities as children of the Most High God. If you want to find this peace and security in identifying yourself with Christ and you have not yet, please do not leave here today without talking to me or somebody about that. Though we are born sinful and opposed to God, we can take comfort in Romans 10 verse 9 that says, if you confess your confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel, the good news. That's the truth that us as Christians are to take to this world. No matter what you're searching for, no matter what you're trying to find meaning in, you will not find it unless it's Christ. That's our mission, our commission. Take it seriously. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel, this good news. Lord, break our hearts for this world that is suffering and struggling to find meaning, to find identity. God, I pray that we would be a light in the darkness to shine the way to you, to shine the way to find their true identities and satisfaction in you. Lord, I pray that these truths would take root in our hearts, that it would bear fruit in our lives and that we would love everyone around us, that we wouldn't compromise the truth in loving people, but that we would still love with all we have. God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.